Hey everybody, the November 2021 Roundup is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And welcome one and all. Thanks for joining me. I hope you had a very nice November. Jen and I certainly did. We played a whole bunch of games, a lot more than usual. We've got almost 30 games, just shy of 30 games to talk about in this month's episode because I went to the Board Game Geek convention in Dallas. Had a fantastic time. Was very, very impressed with how the show was run. Everybody seemed to be adhering to the mask rules. Uh, at least, I should say, everybody in the board game geek area. There were plenty of times that Jen and I got on an elevator and some local Texans had nothing to do with masks and ignore all the signs, but still, we had a great time. Uh, Jen did a, I, I had a, a particularly successful show as well, but more importantly, I had a successful show because I played so many games. I've got so many to talk about. There's just no time to dilly-dally, so let's get going. Although, uh, before we get to my stuff, let's hear from Shay. Take it away, Shay. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hey folks, so I covered two games this month, and uh, that's a little bit less than what I normally do. I'll get into why a little bit later. For now, let's just jump right into it uh, with my number two game, Pathfinder Arena. This was a paid Kickstarter preview, and Pathfinder Arena is a very interesting game because at first it seems just like a normal dungeon crawl. You know, it's from, from the Pathfinder uh, universe, so it's you know, very RPG heavy in terms of like stats and stuff like that, but... It presents them in a different way, and it introduces these other mechanics that have to do with manipulating the board, which are not something you see in your in every you know dungeon crawl you see on the market. So, what it is is that you are playing as like a gladiator who's been summoned to this magical arena, and it's a competitive game. You know, you're trying to defeat the the monsters that are in the arena better than the other uh, adventurers. You know, but the arena is like a magical labyrinth. So. The board is made up of these square tiles, just a bunch of these square tiles, and you can rotate the tile you're on, or you can slide tiles down. There's always one empty space, so you can always slide the uh, board, you know, one way or another. And this allows you to set up, uh, or, you know, arrange the board in such a way that the monsters, which don't generally move, uh, it allows you to set them up so that they attack your opponents. Now, what I like about this is that. Players don't have health, and that was a, a choice that I was surprised by, for sure. But it means that you don't feel ganged up on if the monsters end up attacking you a lot, because you're not out of the game ever. You're not even, like, removed and got to go to the starting zone or anything like that. No, if an enemy attacks you on another player's turn, that just means that that player's going to get some points, because they made that happen. So it really is all about manipulating the board in order to make the uh, enemies attack your opponents. But then you also get points for defeating the monsters yourself. So it has a really nice blend of those traditional RPG mechanics, or at least the feel of RPG mechanics. It's got the same like six stats that you'll be familiar with if you play D&D or Pathfinder. And it has a really great mix of that, but also this cool like spatial awareness puzzle kind of thing. And I would also say that it plays pretty differently between two and four players. 
Uh, two players, very like, tight, strategic, kind of a chess match. But with four players, it's a little bit more slapstick, you know, which I think there's definitely merits to both. But it's it's a little bit more wacky when you're playing with four players because the board just moves so much between turns. Um, but regardless, I think it's a really cool game. I definitely recommend checking it out. Now, my number one game is Nemesis Lockdown. And this is also the reason that I was uh, so busy this month and only got to cover two games on the Rado channel because Awaken Realms hired me to make an official tutorial for them, which is very happy to do. Uh, it, I had a lot of fun doing it, did take up a lot of my time, but also it means I had the game and I got to make a run through for you guys. And let me tell you, I really like this game. Now, it, it'll be very familiar if you've played the original Nemesis, but if you haven't, you are playing as, in, in Nemesis Lockdown, you're playing as workers in a Mars facility which happens to be overrun by aliens, uh, or intruders as they call them. Um, and in this one, the intruders are also called night stalkers because they're very dangerous at night. And this is one of the mechanics that's different from Lockdown versus Original Nemesis because the facility that you're in is losing power. And when your section is in darkness, these monsters, uh, these night stalkers are even more dangerous. So in the game, you're trying to survive this alien invasion, but you've also got personal objectives. Now, this seems like a co-op game, and you can play it completely co-op, but normally it is a semi-co-op game. So you've got your objectives, other players have theirs, and if you can escape the facility and survive, which is not a guarantee even if you've escaped, uh, and have fulfilled uh, one of your objectives, because you start off with two and you get to choose one uh, pretty early in the game, then you get to win, you win the game, and you might win with other people, or no one might win. It's a punishing game. It reminds me, in terms of like its feel, uh, to it reminds me of like Eldritch Horror, uh, those Arkham games that are occasionally punishing, uh, which is the kind of game I really like. I like beating my head against the wall if the wall is the game itself, and uh, and it's you know fun to do while doing it, uh, which this one definitely is. There's a lot of uh, great mechanics, different things like. Um, uh, the way that you uh, move around or do any action in the game is by playing these cards. But the cards have actions on them as well. On top of that, the aliens that you are fighting are really detailed, beautiful minis, and they really feel threatening. You know, there's a lot of times when games like these, you, you get a bunch of items and you feel like Superman because you can just knock everything out of the way and the only goal is, you know, finishing your objective on time. No, no, no. The aliens in this game are a threat and they should be taken seriously which I think is important for this kind of situation. You know, you really should feel threatened by the aliens, and you do. Uh, so uh, if you like games like that, you know, absolutely check out Nemesis uh, Lockdown when it comes out. Uh, I think it's really worth your time. I really enjoyed it. I liked it better than the original Nemesis. Um, and also, if you get it and you want to learn how to play, I will have a tutorial. It's up right now. I think it'll be up very soon, though. So check that out, and also check out the run-through for Nemesis Lockdown. Uh, but anyway, those are the two games I covered this month, and I'll pass it back to you. Bye, folks. Thanks, Shay. And um, since I was so quiet while Shay was actually talking, my wife, Jen, who was outside cooking breakfast, said, oh, you went quiet for a little bit. You want a slice of bacon? And I should have said no, but I said yes, because it was too delicious. <laughs> uh, the foolish thing, of course, is you think, oh, I'll just pause and eat the bacon. But in case you don't know, folks, I actually recorded this roundup live on Twitch on November 29th, the day before it was posted on YouTube, which is kind of how I'm going to be doing things moving forward. So if you'd like to see some behind the scenes of how I put this stuff together and chat with other folks while the uh, run-through, or the round-up is being made, uh, you might want to check that out in the future. 
But anyway, the <laughs> bacon is almost gone. And uh, we're, we're done with Shays. I should say, by the way, both of those look really, really cool. I'm especially impressed by Pathfinder, which I have to admit, when I first heard about, oh, it's uh, warriors dueling in a dungeon. Ah, eh, pass. Wasn't for me, because of my predilections towards not attacking other players. But then, when I watched uh, Shay's video and saw that, oh, me making monsters attack you doesn't hurt you at all. It's just a way that I can score points. But you might take advantage of it because you actually get points for actually beating the monster. I think, oh my gosh, that sounds really, really cool. I look forward to giving it a try. And, uh, right. Oh, and then, yeah, his Nemesis video, which hasn't gone up yet, it'll be going up in a few days, I think, hopefully by the end of the week, is very, very impressive. That game, uh, uh, that, it, it, it's a lot. It's very, very big, very, very impressive. Let me just go on ahead and get that uh, bacon down. And we can move on. Okay, folks, so next up. Normally, at this point, I would actually start counting down all the games I played. But the thing is, I played so many games at Board Game Geek, and uh, I played almost none of them with my wife, Jen. And so that's how I really rate games. How much fun are Jen and I having playing? So there's a bunch of games I can talk about this month that I do not want to put in my regular uh, you know, monthly countdown format where I you know, name the new game of the month and all that. So, I'm going to talk about them first, the, you know, basically it's all the stuff I played at uh, BoardGameGeekCon, and then we will get into the proper countdown of stuff that Jen and I played together. All right, one more swig. Oh, because there's a little bit of bacon in the back teeth. All righty, so let's get going. Let me uh, bring this back up. And uh, the first game that I played was Endangered. And coincidentally, it's first on the list, because if I recall correctly, I made this list in alphabetical order. Um, or maybe, no, maybe I do it in the order I played. But regardless, Endangered is a co-op game I have wanted to play since I first heard about it. Gosh, um, almost two years ago. It looks so, so cool. And I totally missed out on it last year. And I thought at the time, boy, everything I've read, and I heard so much good stuff about it, this might have made it into my top 10 of 2020. And I just never got a chance to get it, because 2020 was a very weird year, not surprisingly. So, when I saw that it was in the uh, the Board Game Geek library, it was the first thing. Forget about all the new hotness, this is the one I wanted to play. I sat down, had a very good time playing with three other people. We barely eked out a win, saving sea otters from you know creeping pollution, you know oil spills all over the bay. And... It's fantastic. I don't want to say until I actually get a chance to play it with Jen, but I do think it is probably one of the top 10 games of 2020. I need to play it a little bit more. The base game comes with saving otters or saving um, tigers. And these two different modules play very, very differently. I got a chance to play both of them. I failed to save the tigers. I did save the otters. And there's already been two expansions that add even more uh, creatures to save doing all kinds of, you know, really straightforward cooperative stuff. But um, I do have to say, the thing I really appreciate about this game, more than anything else, is this is not another pandemic-inspired right. Okay, let's just have our little avatars who move around on the map and fight fires. And, um, you know, this game, uh, we are playing at a more abstract level and really having to work together. Everybody has special powers. I was sitting next to the lobbyist when we uh, won the Sea Otters, and they were the one who was able to keep giving us more influence with the government, because that's how you win. Uh, you don't win by cleaning up the spills. You just try to fight, you know, save animals. But the main thing you do is you actually convince the world that we have to change our practices. And I know it sounds a little preachy and all that, but I gotta say, it's just a fun, solid, cooperative game. I really like the subject matter, but, you know, even if it had been more of a traditional thing, I think the mechanisms are really phenomenal. So I'm looking forward to getting more time with, uh, 
potentially one of the best games of 2020, to my taste anyway, endangered. Let's see. And then what else did I have? Oh, there was... Oh, did I accidentally skip one? Oh, I'm pushing the wrong button. There we go. Yeah. Okay, I got it. Floor plan. Yeah. Okay, I played several roll and rights because they're just so quick and easy. And I've wanted to play floor plan for years as well. Uh, somehow I never got in touch with the uh, publisher to do a to do coverage of it when it was kind of blowing up big and all that. So finally I got a chance to play it, and it's great. Uh, players are architects trying to do the best layout of a uh, architectural blueprint of a house trying to meet the needs of a randomly selected group of customers, but also having to deal with what the dice give you. Because every round you roll two dice. And usually what that means is if you roll a six and a four, you're going to make a six by four room somewhere in your blueprint. And um, that room could either be, I don't know, uh, if fours are kitchens and six are closets, it could be a closet or a kitchen, a very, very big closet. And um, and every round you roll new dice. And so you're really struggling to try to figure out, I need to get these rooms in this particular pattern, but I'm not rolling the dice I need. So how can I build towards that? How can I leave space open? Now, instead, you instead of using the dice to make a two by three room or a one by six room or whatever it might be, you can use um, them to add accessories to your existing stuff. You know, furnishings inside the house, uh, trees outside the house, all kinds of stuff. It's really clever. And I had a great time playing it with, I think his name was Gary. And uh, more importantly, I actually took it up to our hotel room and Jen and I played it in the evening as well. And Jen really liked it also. Very, very impressive game. Highly recommend it if you like Roland Rights and if you're interested in the subject matter, uh, Floor Plan. Then we've got uh, Fry a Fart, which is the latest design from Friedman Fries, one of the OG modern uh, you know designer Euro games uh, extraordinaire. I don't know where that was going, but uh, this. Uh, I would have to say, there's actually Alejandro who I played with, I believe he suggested, and I agree, this is uh, Friedman's take on Ticket to Ride. Because unlike most of his stuff, you know, he's most famous for Power Grid, for big, heavy, complex, machinery piece type stuff. Uh, this is a very, very lightweight lay down track and then move your train along the track to pick up passengers and then deliver them somewhere else. Very simple, straightforward game. Uh, and there's a few things that make it interesting. One is the fact that there is a grid of destination cards, and they're laid out randomly. And on your turn, you can t you can pick up, you can basically commit to delivering somebody from one city to another. And the tricky thing is, you can't just grab any two cards. You have to grab two cards that are adjacent to each other in the grid. One of them being the uh, pickup point, and the other one being the destination point. And so, uh, you, you have to watch that grid like a hawk, because sometimes cities will be really close to each other, and that's just really quick points. Sometimes cities will be very, very far away from each other. Um, are you, and you don't want to waste a lot of time doing that. But it just so happens, that's the one uh, that, you know, that track would maybe work better for you because most of the lines that have been laid from Stuttgart to uh, to Dublin, uh, let's say, were laid by you. And the important thing is you can use anybody's tracks, but if I use your tracks, I got to give you money. 
And that's true in a lot of games. In this game, money is worth a ton of points. You can make more uh, money off of just... Or more points off of hoarding your cash than you can from delivering some uh, rail ride customers. So me paying to use your rail is painful. But the interesting thing is, after I do that once, it then becomes a public rail that anybody can use. So the map is constantly evolving, and you're constantly looking for opportunities to um, you know find the right... And, and it was actually really good. I had a couple of problems. One is, this game uh, is definitely aimed at a European market, because uh, none of the cards... I mean, there's cities from all over Europe and and uh, you know and uh, I think didn't some of them make it all the way to Asia I, I don't remember quite sure but anyway uh, from all over the place and all of the city names are in German uh, which is tricky uh, and because I, I knew what a lot of these cities were but I didn't know their German names and the cards do not give any indication of where they are on the map and so that made it unnecessarily challenging to try and figure out right okay Helsinki I know it's kind of in this area where is it I can't find it amongst all this stuff that was very frustrating I mean Pandemic has been doing this correctly for years. On the card, I mean, the, the cards are nice because they actually show real landmarks of the city. But what's more important is, where is this city on the map? So that was kind of frustrating. My other frustration was I played it as a three-player game, and I would say that is the worst way to play this. Because if you play as a two-player game, a lot of the cards come out of the deck, and that's the timer. If you play at higher player count games, you'll go through the cards much quicker. At three players, you have to leave all the cards in the deck. None of them come out, and suddenly the but three players have to do the work of five players. And so that was... I mean, we all agreed. It was a sharp game that should have ended sooner. And I if I would ever play it again as a three-player game, I would probably pull out all the two-player cards to speed it up. Um, you know, but anyway, uh, overall, I, I would love to play this game again someday at a higher player count, especially now that it's given me a crash course in how to pronounce uh, all kinds of European cities with German pronunciations. And that was uh, Freifart, or Free Ride, it's called in English. Okay, then we go on to G.I. Joe the Deck Building Game, which is a game Jen and I played uh, up in the hotel. And uh, it's a deck builder, it's co-op, and it really captures that um, Yo-Jo feel of, you know, the cartoon from the 80s. Uh, I don't know, maybe there's references to the movies as well. I don't really know the movies, but I did watch the cartoon as a kid. And uh, it's, it's very, very nice. As a deck builder, you've got a deck of just, you know, generic, plain Joes, and you have one leader. Like, Jen played Scarlet, I played Snake Eyes. And, um, you know, on your turn, the first thing you can do is, there are usually one, maybe two, or even three missions on the board. Some of them you have to do solo, some of them can be a co-op thing. But if I decide, you know what, with the cards that I have in my hand, with the Joes I've got here, I think I could finish that mission. So, you have to plug them all into a vehicle. Vehicle maintenance is a big part of this game. And of course, it was a big part of selling the toys back in the day as well. And over the course of the game, as you unlock more cool vehicles that have special powers and whatnot, you know, trying to use the right vehicles for the right mission with the right Joes loaded up with the right equipment, putting all this stuff together to up your chance of success on missions is the crux of the game. That's where the strategy comes in. And the game is that it's most fun when you do a public thing, because even though it's not your turn, if I say, I'm going to launch this mission and Snake Eyes is going to go out there, do you have anybody who could join me? I could really use a demolitions expert, because that'll up my chances. I don't have any. Just so happens Jen has one, so she jumps into my Jeep, or fighter jet, or whatever it is, and off we go to defeat Cobra. So the core gameplay is great. Now, ultimately, what you do is, the way you resolve missions is roll a lot of dice. And kind of reminds me of the end game of London Dread. You're trying to get a big enough collection of dice, because they're all basically 50-50 coin flip dice of successes or not. Uh, and if you get enough of them, you could statistically figure you're going to do pretty well. Anyway, 
whether you succeed in the mission or not, afterwards, all the Joes you had, whether they went on a mission or not, could then be spent to get new stuff. New Joes, you know, a bunch of characters from the show, equipment, all that kind of stuff. And the whole thing works really well. If you like cooperation, if you like deck builders, and if, most importantly, you like the original cartoon G.I. Joe, I think this game really nails it. My wife, Jen, does not care for G.I. Joe, does not care for running around with assault rifles, you know, taking on, you know, cartoony terrorists and all that. So, uh, we didn't actually quite finish the game, quite frankly. I got the basic idea. I thought it was pretty cool. There's a lot of dice rolling. I didn't even mind that so much, because the whole thing came together so nicely. G.I. Joe, the deck-building game. Okay. Then we've got Great Plains. Another one Jen and I played up in our room after I got it from the library. Another one we sadly did not finish. The core gameplay here is brilliant, and it should be. It's from the design team that brought us uh, Mon... Moncala. No, Mondala. Is it Mondala or Moncala? Uh, which was a really great card drafting game. Um, this, like that, is a two-player-only game where players are spreading their forces across the board, kind of almost in a through-the-desert kind of way, if you're an old-school Kinesia fan. And um, the tricky thing is, we are trying to get our... You know, we, we have different spawn places on the randomly generated map. We're trying to get all our folks... Our, uh, one player is blue snakes, the other is uh, orange wolves. Trying to get the majority in all these planes, which are worth points. And they might have point multipliers and all that. The tricky thing is, when you move around, you might move into spaces that give you eagles and uh, horses and bears. Eagles let you hop skip over mountains, which are normally impassable. So you can you think, oh, I've, I've, I've got this whole place locked up. No, you don't. I'll use my eagle and jump over the mountain, and now I've got a foothold in here too. The horses do the same thing, but let you move faster along planes. Those are all fine. The problem came was the third type of animal you can recruit. Bears. Da bears uh, basically made Jen not want to play this game, and we didn't finish it because the bears let you... Oh, if you move up next to somebody, you can play a bear and just push them away, because the bear scares them away. The tricky thing is, when you do this to one of your opponent's pieces, and they have nowhere to run, the bear eats them. And I didn't like doing it to Jen. Jen did not like having it done to her. She's like, oh, I worked really hard to get this, and you're just crushing... You're squishing all my things up against the wall, or eating them with bears. So, it is a very cutthroat game. It is a very, very good area control game. Two-player only, fast, really simple, really elegant. Brilliant design, quite frankly, but too cutthroat for us. Great planes. Then we got Coco Pelli. Now, I covered Coco Pelli when it was on Kickstarter last year, I guess. And I, Jen and I were both super impressed by it. And so, somebody came along, they had their copy and wanted to play it with me, and I really wanted to play it at a higher player count, because I only played it as a two-player game when it was on Kickstarter. So we played a four-player game, and it's just as fantastic as I remember. Steffenfeld does something that does not feel at all like a Steffenfeld game that has tons of interaction, a positive interaction between players, because uh, basically, we're a bunch of Native American tribes who are trying to uh, play cards to do celebrations. I can play cards to my own area, or I can play to the left or the right of me and play to yours. Now, a lot of people wrongly, I think, view this game as actually a very aggressive because, oh, I'm always kind of um, you know playing over to your area and messing with your plans. But the thing is, it's positive for me to play to your area because to score points, you need to get these celebrations finished. And in your own deck, you generally don't have enough cards to finish them up. So sooner or later, these celebrations might clog you up. So you're thankful that one of your opponents will visit you from theirs and help you finish a, celebrate, a celebration that you started so that you can make room for another celebration and unlock other special powers. Coca-Pelli is fantastic. 
It's a great four-player game. Now, one thing I'm a little leery about is the game went through radical changes uh, to the two-player rules. And so what's in the final box is so far removed from what I played, and I thought it was great as a two-player game. I'm a little nervous, so I'm looking forward to trying to play this with Jen now that we're back before the year is out to see if this can make it into my top 10 for 2021. Um, it definitely would as a four-player game. Uh, the jury's still out as a two-player, but that was some Cocapelli had a great time. Oh, man. Then there was uh, Millie Fiori, which is a new design from, um, I want to say Reiner Stockhausen, but that's not right. It's Reiner Knizia. Reiner Knizia. And it's a, such a pretty game. It is very abstract, ostensibly. It is about Renaissance-era rich people you know, investing in beautiful glass production. And the lovely plastic chips that you're playing on the board certainly play up just how lovely the game is. It, it, it looks nice, and it feels nice, too. Uh, the, I played it twice. The first time with Jason Levine, uh, the gaming machine of the Dice Tower. And Jason and I both had to agree... It's terrible as a two-player game. Zero work was put into scaling it down, and so many of the very, very cool interactive systems just completely dry up and disappear. And so Jason and I were both a little disappointed, because we kind of were hoping for more from the good doctor design, Reiner Knizia. Fortunately, I got to play it again the next day. Jason came back, um, and Scott Alden, the head of Board Game Geek himself, and a friend of his uh, came by, and we played a four-player game, and... oh. It's excellent! Millifiori is a wonderful game if you can get a higher player count because there's so many different ways that players have to interact with each other while at the same time racing with each other. But there's temporary collusions and opportunities. All this stuff just disappears in a two-player game. I almost would say it shouldn't have two-player on the box, quite frankly. So I went from super disappointment to dizzying highs. If you get a chance to play Millifiori and you like a good abstract puzzly game, you know, in the same realm as a Zool, but with a lot more direct player interaction that can be positive, you might want to check out Millie Fiore. Okay, then, oh, Neko Harbor. Okay, folks, every time I ever go to a convention, folks always ask me, what was that one hidden gem you found that nobody's talking about? Neko Harbor is that game. I was blown away by it, as was the uh, group of folks I was playing it with. We all sat down thinking, well, this is probably going to be an okay little card-based engine builder, all about trying to build up, I guess you could say, a tourism industry, uh, because ultimately you score your most points by investing in a fleet of ships, and then, well, for starters, you use them to run your engine. But eventually you get to the point where, okay, I want to send my uh, my ship, my super souped-up ship, off to Neko Harbor, or one of the other bonus islands, because that's where the Ludian share of the points are. But as soon as I do that, I've just given away the key driver of my engine. So you're constantly um, this very cyclic game of upgrading the, the key to your engine, these ships, building new ones, sending them away, or keeping them around so you can run your engine more and more. The longer uh, row of cards you get in front of you, the more opportunities you have for really, really cool comboing stuff. And like I said, we were all blown away by this game. has one of the worst rule books I've read in a long time, because it completely strips all the theme out and makes it very, very difficult to learn the game. But um, once you know it, you can teach it in a very thematic way, because everything is very thematically grounded. Shame on whoever wrote the rule book and just stripped all that away and just talked in gameplay terms. But once you get over the hurdle of the rule book, oh my gosh, Neko Harbor is something very, very special. And I would really like to get a chance to play with Jen. I suspect it'll scale great. I only played a higher player count. I think it would work wonderful for two. And I want to revisit Neko Harbor. Then we've got Railroad Inc. Challenge. Uh, and actually, there are two new Railroad Inc. games in, that are called Challenge Games. There's 
Oh, I forget. Forest green or something like that, and shiny yellow. I played both of them. I got both of them from the library. That's the greatest thing about going to a big convention like Board Game Beacon, an amazing library full of stuff that I normally wouldn't get a chance to play. The um, green one is all about adding forest to the core Railroad Inc. formula, and it was very, very cool. Um, but uh, maybe almost even a little too heavy because Railroad Inc. is a really nice kind of you know lightish or uh, simple to explain, very, very crunchy, puzzly, route-building roll-and-write, but really simple and elegant in terms of rules. The new challenge versions of Railroad Inc., which are the yellow and the green version, they add so much stuff. They add specific types of buildings on the map that if you hit them with certain types of stuff you can build, you can unlock their powers. Every time you play, there's going to be a collection of bonus objectives that everybody is racing to try to complete. Um, yeah, and, uh, and of course, then, there's new dice with new uh, rules. And the... Uh, oh, what's it? The... Uh, in the in the green game, there was building forests and you know try, and trying to keep them clumped together, but having multiples of them. It was very Kinesia esque. That was great. The other one, which I did not play, was oh about making nature trails that intersect with your rail lines and your roads. And that one, look, oh man, that's the most complicated I've ever seen this game get. The other one, which I played with Jen later in the room, the yellow version brings in cactuses that you're trying to keep alive under the desert sun, and also canyons that can run parallel um, or perpendicular to your roads, and you have to build bridges over the canyons. It's all fantastic. I was already a huge fan of Railroad Inc., the blue and the red edition. But now, these challenge versions that add so much more, they really ratchet up the depth and complexity of Railroad Inc. And I'll be honest, it's kind of hard to go back to the old ones, which are much more simpler and straightforward. I like them both quite a bit. Uh, I would like to get both of them, at which point I would probably get rid of... Uh, oh, that's so sad. But anyway, uh, Railroad Inc. Challenge, if you like... If you're looking for a... on the crunchier side, of some roll and write, you might want to check them out. Uh, very, very surprising. Then, I wasn't done with Jason Levine. He came back and wanted to play Transformers, the deck-building game. Uh, and we, we sat down and played it with Jen, who was actually the designer of a great little two-player game, Seastead, which I covered last year. I didn't know until almost the end of the game who he was. I was like, oh, wow, you're an awesome designer! And so we all played together. The interesting thing about Transformers Deck Builder is you can play it cooperatively or competitively. Or solo, of course. We assumed... Usually when a game offers that, it's really a competitive game at its heart, and they just kind of bolted the co-op on. I don't think that's the case with Transformers Deck Building Game, because we all agreed that it worked okay as a cooperative game, but it was very, hugely luck-swingy. And um, because it's, it's a deck builder where instead of just having a bunch of buckets of cards that you're buying from every round, or, or a river that you're getting them from, there are, you have a grid of them face down. And you're literally exploring this grid, revealing what those cards are, and sometimes they're Decepticons and they attack you. And sometimes they're cool equipment or other uh, Autobots who, who can pay you can you know, spend resources to put in your deck and join you. So it adds this extra level of exploration to deck building, which is a really cool idea. But in a competitive game, one player can get really lucky and find good stuff all the time, and the other player can get really unlucky and fall further and further behind. So I don't think I'd recommend it. And I don't think um, any of us would have recommended it as a, co uh, as a competitive game. But I did think the core elements were very, very sharp. There were some really neat ideas. I love the core idea of, oh, I can switch modes from a robot to vehicle. 
And that fundamentally changes how I interact with the world. So I'm really looking forward to trying to play it this month with Jen as a co-op, which I think is the way it's supposed to be played. Plus, I mean, Transformers should work together to defeat the Decepticons, not having a friendly competition. So anyway, it was kind of a, a mixed response, but I'm looking forward to playing some more uh, if I get the chance for the Transformers deck building game. Okay, and now I've got two more, Encyclopedia and Gollum. And here's the deal. I'm going to be covering both of these in the month of December, so I'm not really going to spend any time with them. I was really happy to play both of them. They're both fantastic. But uh, in the end of the year, December roundup, I will go into depth on them. And now, there is one more game to talk about before I get to my normal countdown, where I've got 14 more games to uh, go over for you folks. It's... Skyrim, the adventure board game. And this was a very unusual play experience for me, because normally I actually get a real physical prototype of a game when I'm covering it because it's crowdfunding, uh, as this game is on GameFound right now. But in this case, I got online and played for a couple of hours on Tabletop Simulator with Chris, who's the head of Modipius, the... Uh, the publisher, and also the great Jeremy Howard of Man vs. Meeple. And we had a great time. Uh, I, mean, I, I, was, I was just surprised when we were done just how long we had spent in this world exploring and adventuring together. And uh, if you're looking right now and you're wondering, why, why is Jeremy cosplaying as Captain America? He had a very good reason. You'll have to go watch the uh, video and find out for yourself. If you want, you uh, can check the show notes or hit that eye up in the top right corner of the screen. And I'll put a link, because this is on Medipius's uh, YouTube website. But anyway, so we played for quite a while and got to experience a lot of different elements. And now, as hard, this is a cooperative adventure board game that tries and succeeds at capturing the the the, the free open-ended, uh, explorative feel of the original Skyrim video game. It's a big world, and at any given time, there are tons of different rocks you could pick up and look under. There's constantly new uh, side quests and objectives and events happening in the world that are always somehow just kind of distracting you from moving forward and trying to fulfill your own personal quest that will actually push the overarching big-picture story ahead. But that's so appropriate, because if you've ever played Skyrim um, from Bethesda Softworks, I mean, you can play for hundreds of hours and not even finish the first chapter of the story, because the world is so big and there are so many things to do. And this game definitely captures that feel. Now, at its heart, uh, this is a, uh, a, a game of, on your turn, moving to a hot spot in the world, and maybe you'll be able to get there quickly, maybe you'll be able to use a horse and get around faster, or carriages, or sometimes it just might take you a few turns to get where you need to go. But on every turn, you are going to interact with the world wherever you are. If that's in town, you're going to buy and sell stuff and craft stuff and upgrades and all kinds of things like that, or hang out in taverns and talk to people and get quests. Um, if you're out in the woods, you might go plunder a local dungeon or a cave or a mine. There are wandering monsters that appear in the world that have specific goals they're trying to do. So you might try to save a town by going out of your way to stop some big um, troll from rolling through. Or you might just wait patiently for the troll to walk by uh, because it's too big and scary for you. Although, interestingly, again, like the original Skyrim, though a lot of the elements of the world level up with you. The stronger you get, the tougher the monsters get in dungeons and caves and stuff like that. So that was all very nice. But regardless, wherever you end up on your turn, you are then going to interact with the world, and that 
will often mean it's time to roll some dice. There's a lot of roll to resolve in this game. And while you know, I'm on record as not being a particularly big fan of it, if you're going to do roll to resolve, this is a good way to do it. Because whatever, whether it's a round of combat or a skill test, you're trying to disarm a trap or convince somebody to do something or whatever it might be, generally speaking, you're going to roll three dice. You might roll more if you have a specialty in whatever that particular goal is. And these are very cool special custom dice. And you are told right up front what the difficulty is. Um, whether you need to get like um, one really hard symbol, or you need like three of the really common symbol. So you have a rough idea of how well you're going to do. You roll, and then if you're me, you fail. And you fail, and you fail. Man, if you watch this run-through, uh, I mean, the math was not in my favor. Somehow, um, statistical improbabilities abounded when I was playing. But the important thing is, if you roll, and you do not get the result you are hoping for, you have the option to spend resources. Now, it's different depending on whether you're in combat or whether you're doing some town event. Uh, different things require different resources that you sacrifice, but when you sacrifice these resources, they allow you to re-roll and re-roll and re-roll trying to get that target. But even if you fail after those re-rolls, or you decide, look, I, I can't afford to give up any more of this valuable resource. It's better if I just go on ahead and take a hit, or whatever it might be. Um, another real core pillar of the design of this game is uh, what Chris referred to as failing for Forward. There's never any kind of catastrophic situation you will find yourself in where, okay, it's over. There's nothing I can do. We might as well just start the whole thing. Um, you know, if combat doesn't go your way, that just means the world changes. And, and you will have to deal with the outcome of that. But you get to continue moving forward, continue to level up, continue to try and save the world as best you can. And it does all this stuff really well. I was especially impressed when we got to the end. We hadn't had a t enough time to gather enough resources to actually do level ups on our weapons and whatnot, but Chris kind of just kind of gave us a fast-forward if you watched near the end of the video. And um, yeah, this is one of the coolest-looking board game-based leveling-up systems for items I've ever seen. You've got these special cards that can either be enchantments or upgrades, So, and you stack them. You could stack multiples of these underneath your weapons or your armor or whatever, and so they can build up and start creating all kinds of really interesting combo elements. I mean, we just barely scratched the surface, but both Jeremy and I were very, very impressed. So all that stuff is very cool. And if you are the type of person who loves fantasy adventure, if you love Skyrim, you owe it to yourself to check this out. If you love big, sprawling, cooperative, sandboxy, the world is your oyster. Wherever you want to go, just go. And interesting things will happen to you. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out, too. And if you like rolling dice, you will get to roll a lot of dice in this game. But unlike uh, many, many games in this genre, there is something a little bit more going on with the dice rolling. And yeah, the whole thing comes together really brilliantly. I was very, very impressed by the game. Had a great time. Like I said, it just flew by. Uh, and I think Jeremy would agree too. So, uh, like I said, if you want to watch this in action, you can hit that I uh, up in the top corner screen or go follow the links in the show notes and you can watch us explore Skyrim. Oh, and I forgot to mention, too, if you want to try it for yourself, don't take my word for it. Get a copy of Tabletop Simulator and download this. It's free for anybody to try. There's tons of gameplay in the demo that is available, so you can really dig deep and see all this stuff for yourself firsthand. Nothing's stopping you. Yeah. Very impressive game. But unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to play it with Jen, so it just didn't feel right rating it. And so it joined all those Board Game Geek Con titles that were all very, very interesting. But 
Folks, you waited long enough. It is now time for the actual roundup. 14 games that Jen and I played enough to make me feel like I could talk about them. And this is countdown format. We'll start with our least favorite and with our most favorite. So, without further ado, let's talk about number 14, Infinity Gauntlet, a love letter game. And um, this is basically, if you're all familiar with Love Letter, which is a very popular micro game, or I should say now a series of micro games, because the original Love Letter was such a big deal that they've rethemed it, they've put Batman on it, all kinds of stuff. The Infinity Gauntlet, uh, you know, which is obviously part of the Marvel comics lore, is the latest version of it. And I really wanted to try it because I tried the original Love Letter, thought it was neat, thought it was not worth playing as a two-player game. Uh, and I think most people agree with that, that really you want to have at least three or more players to have all the guests games and everything really come to life. In a two-player game, it's a bit too zero-sum. Infinity Gauntlet is interesting, though, because it becomes a one-versus-many. One player is Thanos, trying to get all the, uh, you know, the Infinity Stones, snap his fingers, and wipe out half of all life in the universe. All other players are playing a cooperative game against Thanos. And that's a really cool idea. But all the same stuff from Love Letter, where there's imperfect communication, you can't talk about what's in your hand. Even if you're playing cooperatively, uh, you have to intuit what, both what's in your opponent's hand, Thanos, and what's in your teammate's hand. So I would still love to try this at a higher player count. Jen and I, we did sit down on Thanksgiving Day, and we played a couple of quick games of it, with switching sides, and I thought it worked. It certainly worked better as a two-player game than straight-up Love Letter. No two ways about it. But still, the whole time we were playing it, I was thinking, oh man, this would be so much more amazing if there was at least one more hero for me to go up against. Uh, they emulate having multiple players by the hero player taking two turns in a row. It works, it's okay, but yeah, it's just not uh, a good fit for me. So, again, I'd love to play this as a higher player count someday, but sadly, Infinity Gauntlet comes in at number 14 of the month as a two-player game. Okay, then let's go on to number 13, Nano Games, which was a paid Kickstarter preview, uh, which is still online right now. I think it's ending this week. You know, if you're watching this the day it goes live, I think you've only got a few hours left to check this out on Kickstarter, and I suggest you do because it's very, very cool. The core idea here is uh, the Nano, as in nine, each of the three games that are on offer in this Kickstarter campaign are composed of nine dice, nine cards, and nine cubes. And from those resources, you have to make a really interesting game. And they've made three. A uh, very, very cool route-building game, a, uh, a engine-building empire-style game, and a, a more lightweight SimCity-ish sort of game. They all play very differently. And um, here's what I didn't know. That uh, when when I covered this, when I did my run-throughs for them, uh, you know, back when the Kickstarter first went live, they've since announced that they have come up with rules to be able to combine all three games into one mega game. And oh my gosh, I wish I still had my prototypes because I so want to try that. Because there were things I liked in all three of the games. My favorite was the route building. My second favorite was the engine building. My least favorite was the city symmetry one because that was the really simple lightweight gateway one. But combining all three of these into one super game. That seems very, very cool. And by the way, um, this is just the first of the Nano Game series. If these do well, the publishers are planning on having a second set of three and a third set of three. I wonder if ultimately you'll be able to combine all nine. That seems crazy, but who knows? Uh, anyway, uh, it was very, very cool. Rated as a whole, I'm putting it a bit lower on the list because the, the SimCity game was really way, way too lightweight. And the um, the engine building game was solo only. Um, as was the uh, route building game, if I recall correctly. But, uh, you know, so I mean, 
These come in lower because they're predominantly solo. I didn't really get a chance to play them as much as Jen. I did think they all worked. I'm just not, in my heart, a solo gamer. But um, I, I really liked the two of the three. The other one I thought was okay, but I'd love to see how it combines. But anyway, that's all combined. Again, you just have a few more hours now, potentially, to check out my number 13 of the month, the Nano Games set number one. Okay. Then we go on to number 12, The Hunger. Now, this is basically answers that age-old question. What do you get if you combine Clank, Vampires, and Magic the Gathering creator Richard Garfield? You get The Hunger, which is a competitive uh, deck-building game where players are vampires that are racing through the countryside as fast as they can to eat as or to feed upon as many innocent villagers as they can before the sun comes up. So you're zipping out, trying to get as far as you can to get access to uh, bonus objectives and treasures and the all-important villagers who you try to feast on. But if you go too far, if you push your luck... The sun will come up, and if you can't get back to your castle on the top of the mountain before time runs out, you'll burn like a crisp, and you'll lose everything. So, that sounds a lot like Clank, doesn't it? Uh, Clank has that same thing of going into a dungeon, going deeper deeper, trying to get better treasures, but you got to get out before time runs out. So, um, first of all, just for the record, if for folks who would think, oh, this is just ripping off Clank, both Clank and The Hunger are from the same publisher, Renegade Games. So there's no rip-offs. And if you like Clank, but you've ever thought, Clank is if you wanted a harsher game, a more dangerous game. Um, because, you know, in this game, you, I mean, if, if you don't make it out, you just die. In Clank, it's much easier to at least, okay, at least I didn't get my bonuses, but I'll make it out alive. And um, you can generally stay out a lot longer. Here, with the hunger, it's not a variable time length. You have exactly 15 rounds from start to finish. And if you're not back to safety, you die. So there's a much greater sense of danger and threat. Um, now, one thing that I think I appreciate more about Clank is the fact that uh, in, in, in most uh, deck builder games, you start your hand with five cards in hand, and you try to figure out, what am I going to do with these cards? Buy new cards, all that kind of stuff. In this game, instead of buying cards, you feed on the cards. And the more cards you get, the more they slow you down. In Hunger, you only draw three cards on your turn. There are some uh, rules around that, but for the most part, you start with three cards. And that makes for a much more challenging situation, because the more you feed, the more you fill up your deck with 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 uh, villagers who are just clogging everything up. And it's hard to thin them out. So you have to really play with peak efficiency and really clever, smart use of those brief windows you have to thin your deck. And um, you, it's, it's much, much riskier to go deeper in this game, whereas Clank is a bit more freewheeling. Now, I'm not saying that's better or worse, but it's very, very different. Uh, and I think for some people, it's, it's weird. On, on one level... The uh, hunger is simpler. Oh, look, I only have three cards to play every turn. It's going to be simpler to play these turns. But on the other hand, it's much more harsh. And I, I would almost say, uh, you know, base game of hunger versus base game of Clank, there are more special rules. It is a more complex game. It is a harsher game. And yet it's also a more streamlined game. So it's really kind of interesting to compare the two. Quite frankly, the reality is, if you love Clank, 
I don't see there's any way you will not love this game. This would just be like, oh, we want to play Clank tonight. Let's play the Vampire Clank, i.e. The Hunger. If you don't like Clank, would you like The Hunger? I know a lot of people really could not stand the fact that Clank uh, has this issue where sometimes players will just rush and r- rush in and rush out and then start the countdown timer on all the other players, and that can be very frustrating. The fact that this game has a fixed number of rounds from start to finish abolishes that, so you have a lot more flexibility and freedom to push and um, you know and not be quite so restricted based on your opponents. So I mean, there are strengths and weaknesses of both games. I, I think it was uh, definitely fun. I definitely enjoyed it, uh, and uh, yeah, it came in at my number twelve of the month of the hunger. And you'll be able to see my run-through for that. Oh, my run-through for that just went live today. Or maybe it was yesterday, depending on when you're watching this. Or maybe it was years ago, depending on when you're watching this, I should say. Anyway, let's move on to number 11, Floriferous. Now, this is the latest uh, collaboration between uh, Steve Finn and Pencil First Games. It is a gorgeous, lovely little card drafting game. Plays very, very fast. uh, And it basically borrows the drafting mechanism from King Domino, but really builds on it. Uh, Because King Domino... Okay, I I, I know whatever tile I take right now is going to determine next round, but in this game, you can see the next five rounds worth of stuff. And trying to navigate getting the best card you need right now, but put yourself in a position to get the, an even more important card later is very, very clever. It's beautiful. It's very, very fast playing. Um, and I, I really, the crux of it is, at any given time, depending on how you proceed, you might have three or four or five different uh, conflicting set collection challenges you're trying to achieve. You're trying to get these bounties that everybody's racing to get the most points on. You're tr- you've got your own personal um, desires that you want to see. You've got, uh, what are they called? Arrangements of flowers, where you have to get certain types of flowers. So you can have all these different things. And you say, okay, well, based on all this, man, I really need sunflowers. Or not sunflowers, I really need poppies. There's one poppy that came out. And this is a short game. That might be the last poppy of the game. What do I have to do? Uh, What do I have to sacrifice now to make sure I get that poppy? Because it will plug into so many of my different set collections. It's a really simple, beautiful, fast-playing, elegant game. Very lightweight. uh, Really good gateway. Very easy to teach. You can... um, uh, I have Robbie up and running with this. I think it'd be a great gift game, too. Maybe a little bit on the light side for me and Jen, but we were still very, very impressed with my number 11, Floriferous. Did I say that right? Floriferous. It's a tough word. Floriferous. Okay. Let's move on to number 10. If I can push the button... Dice Kingdoms of Valeria. Now, this was another paid Kickstarter preview, and uh, it's another roll and write. It was a big roll and write month for me and Jen, and that's cool because we love roll and writes. I have not even remotely gotten tired of them as long as they continue doing new and interesting things, and Dice Kingdom of Valeria does that. Uh, this basically takes the Dice Kingdom of Valeria original, or, or the uh, Card Kingdoms of Valeria, the original game, and uh, turns it into a roll and write. And what does that mean? Well, Card Kingdoms of Valeria was basically a Machi Koro-inspired game, where you've got a whole bunch of citizens who have you know special abilities, and every round we roll dice, and those uh, get to activate everybody's citizens. Uh, you know, it's incredibly popular in Machi Koro, and I mean, and in Dice Kingdom of Valeria, and Space Base, and oh, a couple more came out. Uh, My Farm Shop and, oh, the, the new one from Aporta Games, which is really, really cool. I want to say Outlanders. No, it's not that. Oh, we we're, were doing high. Anyway, there's a bunch of games that do this. This is the first one I've seen that does it in roll and write form, which gives it a lot of really cool stuff. Because you could kind of think of this game as Machi Koro combined with Gone Shown Clever. Because this game really strongly features that Gone Shown Clever-esque 
uh, hey, if I click this, if I, if, I, if I activate this thing, it'll activate that thing, that thing will activate that thing, and you create really cool, fun, satisfying combo chains. And, um, you know, and the game is abundant with them. So it works great. My wife loved it. I think it was her second uh, favorite game of the month. I liked it a lot too, but I mean, there were some other Roland Wrights I liked even more. Like I, I talked about earlier, the, the, the really heavy railroad ink. So uh, for me, it came in at number 10. Maybe I should have bumped it up a little bit more. I only just found out from yesterday from Jen just how much she loves it. Because of course, if you're a patron supporter of the show, you might know that I, every month, do a video with my wife, Jen, where we break down all the games of the month from her perspective. It was her number two of the month. Uh, she really loved it. I really liked it. Uh, and it's still, I think it's still live on Kickstarter. And the interesting thing is, like the Nano Games, this is part of a three Kickstarter game campaign. There's this roll and write. There's also a cooperative tower defense game set in Valeria and a trick-taking game. I didn't get a chance to play those two, but I'd like to try all of them. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed my time with Dice Kingdoms of Valeria. Then we go on to number nine, the Palaces of Carrara 2nd Edition. And my run-through for this is not live yet. Uh, it'll be live in December when the game goes up on Kickstarter. But we have played it, and we very much like it. Now, I originally covered Palaces of Carrara almost a decade ago when it first came out. And uh, probably the best thing I can say about Palaces of Carrara is through moves and many, many calls of my collection over 10 years, it has always stayed. I have never once been tempted to get away because the core game from uh, Kramer and Kiesling about... Uh, spending half your time using expert timing to get building materials from a market where the prices are constantly shifting, and the other half of your time building buildings and trying to score them with peak efficiency has always been brilliant. So, for years, it's been all but impossible to get, unless you got the German copy like I did. And so people have been wanting it. It's finally going to be available. And it's a new updated second edition where Kramer and Kiesling have revisited and added a bunch of new stuff to the game. Uh, most notably... Uh, uh, well, there's still decorations, but they work completely differently. And now there's also statues, which add this kind of area control element to the game. It's still the same market is all about rotating that uh, that wheel when you buy stuff, so things get cheaper. But there's two wheels. So you can manipulate both wheels at once with the rotation, or just the smaller one, and change things up that way to not give bonuses to your uh, opponents. Uh, because a big part of this game is paying attention to them and not doing something that helps your competitor to your left more than it helped you. Uh, so the core game is still here. It still works great. You can watch my run-through right now from 10 years ago if you want to see just how good it is. Uh, and it adds a bunch of really cool new stuff. Now, there's one odd thing. To me, the reason Palaces of Carrara has stayed on my shelf for so long is because one of the things it had was a deck full of cards that created variable in-game uh, uh, scenarios where, okay, this time when we play, we got these three cards. These are the three things that will let that everybody's racing to complete to finish the game. Those cards have been removed. And I understand, I mean, I guess they have been removed because so much other stuff has been added that keeping those cards in would make it over the top. And this is still, at its heart, a very elegant, fast-playing game. So I can imagine um, Kramer and Kiesling might have been worried about combining all their new stuff that, you know, that crunches up and makes the game more complex with all their old stuff. And so they took the old stuff out. That old stuff, though, for me, was hugely important, and I very much miss it. And so, my problem is, I uh, was very sad when I saw... I almost said, I don't even know if I want to cover the game. I just hold on to my old one, because those cards, those objective cards are so huge. Here's the deal, folks. 
That's when the publisher said, well, we are still making those cards available. They are available as an extra add-on bonus purchase during the campaign. Uh, for, I think it's just an extra five bucks, you can get the deck of cards that replicates and actually lets you pretty much recreate the original rules of the game if that's what you want to play. And like, oh, okay then, no problem. I'll cover it. Now, I haven't gotten a chance to play with those. And I should say, I mean, I don't want to overstate this. The game, the new game, is great. If I had never seen those cards, I don't think I'd miss them. But because I have seen those cards, I do miss them. So I'm very, very happy that they will be available during this Kickstarter campaign if, if you want to seek them out. The game doesn't need them. So it's basically been turned into one of those optional promos. But sometimes, you know, promos are like, oh, that's kind of nice to have. Sometimes promos really make the game. I think this is going to be one of those types of promos. So if you're at all interested in Carrara, when it goes live on Kickstarter, I think next week, in the first or maybe the second week of December, I don't remember, uh, keep an eye out for that retro pack if you would like to get the full experience. All the new stuff plus all the old stuff. Whoa! Hold on, folks. Uh, breaking news. Uh, if you really want to get that promo pack, which I certainly do, you can get it for free if you follow the campaign before it launches on day one. And check out that uh, picture right there is photographic evidence. Now, uh, you can follow a link for it down in the show notes down below. You'll find the uh, crowdfunding link for this and all the other crowdfunding games I mentioned this episode. Right. Okay, let's get back to it. Um, now, I'm rating at number nine uh, because I haven't gotten a chance to play with those cards. I suspect this would have climbed up into my top three of the month if I had those cards on hand. But as it is, that was my number nine of the month, the Palaces of Carrara, second edition. Okay, then um, we are going to talk about Robotopia. Uh, another uh, Kickstarter. Uh, by the way, folks, I think I misspoke a couple times uh, in this run-through, as I think some of the ones I was talking about, I'm pretty sure Carrara is on GameFound and not on Kickstarter. Tell you what, check the links in the show notes of this video. There will be links to the Kickstarter or GameFound campaigns for each one of the crowdfunding games I talked about, because it's getting to the point where crowd, you know, GameFound and Kickstarter are pretty much they're, they're interchangeable in my head. Um, anyway, so... Uh, again, if you're looking for them and I and I read you wrong, check the links in the show notes. It'll all be made clear there. But anyway, let's continue with my number eight, Robotopia, which is another paid Kickstarter. And sadly, so sadly, this launched um, last month and they've had to cancel because they were not hitting their funding goals. And this breaks my heart because this is such an incredibly cool, fresh, new, and different worker placement game, unlike any other worker placement game that has come out. And that is so rare. Worker placement is so ubiquitous now for a game to be bright and colorful and fun and fast playing, but also be completely new. Oh, it breaks my heart. And so I really, really hope that the publisher will be able to, I don't know, get feedback about why it wasn't taking off more, because it's a gorgeous game. It's fun, it's fast, and it's just so unique. What is it, though? I guess, you know, I should I should say that's kind of my job. Basically, we've got a robot factory, uh, our workers are robots, and there is a caste system for these uh, robots. Uh, some robots will only let you do one action. Some, when you place them, will let you straddle multiple worker placement spots and activate both. Some will let you straddle three. So with one worker, you can do three actions. But as you might imagine, those robots, the blue ones, if I recall correctly, are much more expensive. But the, I mean, so that's all very nice. But you've kind of seen similar stuff to that before. Here's what's really interesting. Once you put your worker on the board and do whatever it is, you know, work in the mines to get the materials you need to build more robots or convert things to other things, you know, Euro-y type stuff. You know, the, the fun basics. Um, once you've, and, you know, and ideally, you put it in such a way that you can like make a really nice combo chain of one, two, three kind of stuff. 
after you've done that, the robot powers down. It's done, and it just sits there. And over time, as players do more and more worker placement, the board just gets completely overloaded with all these workers, uh, these dis deactivated robots. They've shut down, and you don't get to bring these robots back. Instead, um, one of the things you're developing, in addition to trying to get in good with the robot guilds and collect resources and everything you're trying to do, one of the things you're trying to invest in are robot manufacturing machines, because everybody owns their own. And when you are out of robots, your next turn is going to be to power up all your robot manufacturing machines and build completely new robots. But now, this is where things get fun. There is a big... It was, it was a really cool-looking miniature. Mine just had a little standee, but the miniature looked very cool. There's the master robot, like the foreman. When you generate new robots, the foreman robot wakes up, moves clockwise around the board, kind of Rondell style or Moncala style, to the new area, and whoever did this gets to pick one area for this for the master robot to go in and crunch all of the offline robots. And so they all go, they you clear out the board. So suddenly all those worker placement spaces are opened up again, but other players are going to get to go to them first because you're the one who was, uh, you know, making room for them. But every robot that you crunched gets scrapped and converted into resources that, that you can use for other stuff. This is one of the most brilliant worker placement ideas I have ever scene. It is so sharp, and I am beside myself. I cannot understand why this game had a hard time finding an audience. Again, it breaks my heart. Um, it was a ton of fun to play, and uh, well, I guess I'll always have the prototype unless the publishers want me to send it on someplace else. But yeah, Robotopia, uh, great, great worker placement game, my number eight of the month. In a very, very busy month with dozens and dozens of games I played. Okay, Fingers crossed, it makes a comeback. Uh, come on, you can do it, Robotopia. All right, let's move on to number seven, Mobile Markets. Now, this is a sequel to one of, I think, the best Euro-style modern-day business simulations on the market. Now, the best one is still Predaporter. I love me some Predaporter. But the second best, in my opinion, is probably Smartphone Inc., which is a game all about um, you know, just developing... Or maybe Kanban. Kanban's really good, too. Oh, anyway, I, I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I'm just talking about the stuff for this month. Anyway, uh, Smartphone Inc. and its sequel, Mobile Markets, is all about investing in R&D, uh, you know, manufacturing your phones, marketing them, and trying to get a foothold in markets to be able to sell them and make lots of money, which is points. But, of course, you're um, every step of the way having to compete with your opponents who are also trying to sell to those same consumers and maybe have better phones than you. Or maybe they made really cheap, schlocky phones and they're just trying to unload them. Because once a consumer has bought a phone, they won't buy your super-duper high-tech one if it had the exact um, feature that that audience wants. So, Smartphone Inc. was a brilliant game. I think Mobile Markets is better. At least it's better for me and Jen. Because the original game, the biggest thing that's gone is the original game had a map of the world. And there were territories, North America, Africa, uh, Asia, Europe, and uh, you know South America, all that. And you, in addition to everything else you were trying to do, you were trying to get um, distribution footholds in all the different markets. Mobile Markets assumes, hey, you know what? We've moved on. It's one global market that everybody sells to now. So the map is gone. And that means the kind of nasty cutthroated area control elements of, of, of Smartphone Inc. is gone. Now, for some people, they'll say, ah, oh, that's what I love most about the game. You know, trying to undercut you in your own backyard. Uh, there, there's still opportunities. There's still brinksmanship. They're still trying to say, oh, I bet you really want to sell to those people. I sold to them first. But um, it's, it's, it's a bit more live and let live. And while the map has gone away, 
new elements have been added. Uh, marketing, which did not exist, which gives you all kinds of new cool special powers, is in. And, uh, you know, and some other stuff besides. I love everything about this game. I thought Smartphone Inc. was brilliant. I played the Smartphone Inc. expansion. I thought that made the game even better. I got rid of my Smartphone Inc. to make room on my shelf for mobile markets. I like it that much. It's my number seven of the month. Okay. Then, let's talk about number six, Zapotec. Oh my goodness, this game is fantastic. This is the uh, latest era of antiquities, or would you call it? Maybe not that old, but um, you know, uh, old world, uh, Euro-style game all about gathering resources to build up some of the great wonders of the old world. Here we are in South America, if I recall correctly. I'd have to go back and look. And uh, we are gathering resources to build the, the great pyramids of, of, of Central America. Yeah, Central and South America. I forget if it's Central or South. Oh, I, if I could, I'd go and look right now. And actually... I, I will say, that's one of the big strengths of this game. Putting aside the gameplay for a second, I'll come back to that. Probably the thing more than anything else I really appreciate about this from publisher Board and Dice is the attention to detail that the publisher has put in to um, getting the subject matter right. They have actually hired cultural consultants uh, who have weighed in on everything. They've actually talked in the rule books about, okay, well, here's the way it really was in ancient history. We've had to make this adjustment uh, to, to make gameplay work, but you know, to give you a better understanding of really what was going on at this time. I mean, this game is a masterclass from Board and Dice, who are fast becoming the best in the business at um, treating cultures other than their own with respect. Uh, it's obvious in every uh, step of the way. I mean, if you check out the rule book, um, just how important it is to Board and Dice to get this done correctly. So, I think that's amazing. I absolutely love it. You can go download the rule book on Board Game Geek right now and check it out for yourself. Mwah. Or you can watch my run through. I talked about this in my thoughts. But all that aside, it's a great Euro as well. It's the this is my favorite type of game. Some people would consider it dry and dusty and beige, getting a bunch of cubes, converting them into other cubes to complete objectives, to go up score tracks, to get points. Oh, that's manna from heaven for me. And normally, games like that, including games from board and dice, tend to be on the long side, at least for me and Jen, you know, 90 minutes, two hours, two and a half hours. Probably the coolest thing about Zapotec is the first time we played this, including teaching game, Jen the game, we got it done in under an hour. This game is lightning fast you know, from start to finish. Um, I mean, you, you start with nothing, but you ramp up almost immediately. And by the end of the game, you're pulling off really big moves. But the end of the game comes, even at higher player counts, at the hour mark. That is clearly something that this game does to set itself apart from all the competition. And I love it. And if all that weren't enough, I mean, I love the handling of the subject matter. I love the uh, you know the fresh approach to making a fast-playing Euro that is still every bit as crunchy. Gives you all the feels of a big, long, epic uh, you know economic simulation Euro, but is just done in lightning quick. But then. It's got really cool, cool, fun engine building stuff as well. Because every time you build a new building, you take a tile, you add it to your grid that will generate automatically on future turns resources for you. Um, but you're trying to lay them out so that you can, with peak efficiency, activate multiples of these tiles. But the the core thing is you have a you have some cards. Every turn you play a card. It's a multi-use card. This card tells you where you can build. This card tells you which portion of your engine you'll be able to activate. And this card tells you what your speed is. Think Gloomhaven. The initiative system, the lower the number, the faster you get to go. Going first in this game is everything. So sacrificing a card that would have let you do a big production so you can go quicker so that you can get that la to get the topper on the pyramid that everybody was contributing towards is everything. 
oh my gosh, this is such a wonderful game. Um, it might make it into my top 10 of the year. I mean, this, I mean, you know, don't be uh, taken aback by the fact this is my number six. This was an incredible month of some of the best games of the year. That's always the way it works. If you're a Euro fan, all the good stuff comes out at the end. And Zapotec is definitely one of the best. Absolutely adore it. Watch my run through to see more. Okay, then let's go on to number five. Rolling Realms. Like I said, folks, I played a lot of rolling rights this month, and just when you thought I was out, I pulled you back in. I played Rolling Realms with um, random strangers, with our neighbors at Board Game Geek. I played it with Jen in the hotel. I played it with Jen when I got back, and I played it with Ruel Gaviola in the first ever RVR show, where Ruel and I um, basically face off, and we actually got to play against the audience. You can watch the run-through and play along with us and see if you can beat Ruel's and my score, if you want. But all that aside... What is Rolling Realms? It is the latest game from Stonemeyer Games, and basically the idea of it is it, it takes all the other games from Stonemeyer, condenses the gameplay of those down into a single card, and when you're playing, you have three Stonemeyer games in front of you that represent three completely different roll and rights. And um, every turn you roll the dice, and it's two dice. One of the dice you'll apply to one card, one you'll apply to another, and the third card won't get nothing. And you play through, what is it, 27 rounds of this, going through nine cards. And so in 27 very, very fast rounds, I mean, this is a half an hour game, you will feel like you have played nine unique roll and rights. And making tough choices, compromises between all of them, this is brilliant. I absolutely love it. And um, I also love the story behind it. Uh, this game came about because Jamie wanted to give folks at home during um, lockdown something fun that they could play long distance. This game is perfect for playing long distance over Skype or Zoom or whatever. And so he made this, he did a print and play, it proved to be so popular, that people really want a full commercial version, so it's now coming out. I think you can pre-order it now. It'll be available soon, I believe. I'm, I could be wrong about that. But anyway, I got my copy. I've played it a bunch, and I love it. I love it so very much. My number five, Rolling Realms. Then we go on to number four, another paid Kickstarter preview for Resurgence. The interesting thing about this is, this is from designer Stan Kardonsky. And, oh my gosh, he has had such a role for the last few years. Uh, Endless Winter, and um, Rurik, and, oh my gosh. Uh, I, I, I Actually, I kind of did like a little breakdown of his career when I covered this game. And, I mean, he's just been do producing nothing but phenomenal game after phenomenal game, getting better and better and better. Started out with Dice Hospital. Resurgence, I would say is currently his high watermark. It is such a brilliant design. I was just talking about with Robotopia how rare it is to get worker placement games that do something truly new and interesting and different. This is another one that does it. Although you might I might be forgiven for not recognizing that because this is a bag builder. It's a worker placement bag builder. And so at first glance, it kind of looks like, oh, this is set in post-apocalypse Russia with mutants running around, but it plays like Orleans. You'd reach into a bag, you place these workers out, and um, you deploy them all around the, uh, the central map to do stuff, worker placement style. There is so much going on with this game. And I think what really makes it special more than anything else is, um, like... Dungeon Pets or Fresco, you program what your workers are going to be doing behind a shield. And then, so whatever you drew out of the bag, you then have to figure out where you're going to go. And each one of these workers, they're basically multi use workers um, because they determine where you can go, they determine what they can do, they determine where you will exercise your leadership because there's competition on these different tracks that will unlock all kinds of bonuses. I, I'm kind of thinking back to like a Brussels 18, was it 1857? 1867? 
the, the Brussels game where every worker you place is like, oh, I'm doing like five games! I'm playing five separate games all at once with this single worker placement game. Resurgence kind of has that vibe as well. But it is um, a very fun, fluid, and fast playing game. I think more than anything else that really elevates for me is that, okay, I think I'm gonna program this one to go over on the Metro. This one's gonna go down on the waterfront. I'm gonna keep this one at home. But really, this one should go over there. But if, uh, but I, I should probably go that. But if, if I can make it over there, and if I can beat anybody else there, I won't have to spend the extra resources, and that'll give me a bonus because it's that type of worker right there. Okay, okay. I think this is it. That's how I'm gonna go. Reveal. Oh my gosh! All of your people are going on the Metro. Am I ever gonna have a chance of actually making it where I need to go? Does my whole plan fall apart? Probably does. But then that means that's where the game really gets fun, because now you've got to come up with a new plan. And, oh, it is great. Uh, it's fun, fast playing. Again, watch my run-through to see why Stan Kardonsky is here to stay. He is now definitely an upper echelon designer, and Resurgence uh, definitely cements that. And, uh, by the way, I believe it's on Kickstarter... I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it wasn't game found. Again, there's a link for it down in the show notes for a couple more days as of the time of filming this. So uh, if you're at all interested in it, um, you want to get on the ground floor of something very, very cool, really fun, fun, fun game, you might want to check out Resurgence. Okay. Oh, we're almost to the, uh, done, folks. We're almost to the end. Here's my number three, Luna Capital. Oh, wow. Uh, so there has been a new kind of drafting that's on the rise. Uh, started seeing it a few years ago. Most recently, I think Cascadia is probably the, the biggest... Uh, the, the biggest success using what I like to call entwined drafting, or maybe interlock drafting, or symbiotic drafting, whatever you want to call it, the idea that on your turn, you're going to take a tile, or a card, or whatever, but you don't just get that, because it has been fused with some other tile, or some other card. And if I really want that tile, I have to take this other one. And it's great when I want both of them, but usually you'll find that, oh, I really want that tile, but it's, it's connected to something that's garbage for me. And also, I want this other tile over here, and it's connected to other garbage. And so, having to make these tough compromises in this entwined drafting is wonderful. I cannot get enough of it. Like I said, there, I've played about a half a dozen games of it over the last year or two. Luna Capital, I think, is now the high watermark for that in the industry. Yes, I'm putting it above Cascadia for folks uh, who are keeping track at home. And Cascadia is wonderful. Luna Capital is all about building a, uh, a, a capital city on the moon. And it is all about entwined drafting. In this game, the cards you grab, you grab a card that um, indicates the terrain of the moon, and then it's going to be associated with certain tiles. And so you are... This is a double-decker tile there, which I love as well. You have to place the uh, foundation, but then you have to you have to do that, bearing in mind the tiles you're going to get that you're going to build on top. And of course, like a lot of tile layers, you're trying to get the right tiles next to the right tiles to trigger bonuses and effects and all kinds of stuff. So, the entwined drafting combined with a double decking uh, is very, very cool. But again, we've seen that before. What really pushes Luna Capital over the top, above, and it does a lot of great stuff. Watch my run-through. Has it gone live yet? I think it has. Uh, but anyway, the coolest thing about this is this escalation. Uh, in the first round, my card is associated with one tile, with one building. The second round, a card I take is associated with two. In the third round, it's associated with three. In the fourth round, it's associated with four. And so, the thing is, you are grabbing land at a fixed rate, but you are increasing the speed with which you grab 
um, buildings. And so you very quickly run into very, very challenging spots where I cannot get all of these tiles onto the land the way I want to. And, um, and the game has this really cool ebb and flow because after you take a card and get four, then it resets and the game kind of slows down. And then you're only taking one tile. But then you're taking two tiles, and three tiles, and four tiles. And this sends you on a roller coaster that is so sublime. And it's just, it, I mean, you know, the, the game, it, it never gets to a point where, oh, I'm just going through the motions, because it's constantly changing the feel from, oh, I, I'm free, I can do whatever I want to, this incredible noose is around my neck, and then, oh, I, I've got all this flexibility again. It's great. It's got a lot of variability set in with you know variable objective cards and all that kind of stuff you would expect. And um, I, I, both Jen and I were totally blown away by it. It's my number three of the month. It's probably another one that might make it into my top ten of the year, Luna Capital. Okay, but now let's talk about number two. Terra Furtua. Oh my gosh, this has been such an amazing month, folks. Another top 10 candidate, not surprisingly. This is a very simple drafting game where on your turn, you're going to take a card from one of two rows. The top row has cards that generate goods. The bottom row has cards that convert goods into other goods. You're t every turn, you're going to grab a new card and add it to a 3x3 three three grid. The game is over once you have made a 9x9 nine nine grid. You are trying to build cities of the future that are green-friendly, that can deal with their pollution. I have not had to worry about pollution so much in a game since... Um, I was going to say London, but uh, you know, there's also antiquity. I mean, this game, uh, you know, every time you want to do anything with industry to to build things that will score you points, you're making more pollution, and so you have to be very, very careful about having places to store that or sequester it, because if pollution gets put unsequestered on a card, it totally shuts that card down. And in a game where you only have nine cards, you're only play through nine rounds, losing a card because of pollution is painful. But that's all beside the point. That's not what makes this game special. That's just theme that is really wonderfully integrated into gameplay. The cool thing is, you put a card down uh, in this grid, you activate that card, and every card in the same row in the same column. So, I love Glenmore, one of the greatest tile-land games of all time. This takes Glenmore and pumps it up to 11. You're not only activating the immediately adjacent things, but everything in the row and column. So, that so elevates the gameplay, especially considering it's just a, a three by three grid. And so, you know, the first turn you are, you already had one card as part of setup. You put one card out, you're activating two. Then, depending on how you build, are you going to activate two cards in the same round or three cards in the same round? By the end, you might be activating three, four, five cards in a given round, depending on how you built. But then there's one more thing, the icing on the cake, that really makes this game special. As part of setup, you get two in-game bonus cards. Uh, both of them have on them. Uh, one thing is a uh, you know they each have an objective where hey if I do this I'm, and which means I'm trying to do this throughout the whole game I can convert this combination of things into points at the end of the game so you've got two of those you're going to pick one of them each of these cards also has an activation grid showing you the same three by three and showing that you after you've taken your nine turns and gotten as much as you could out of your engine without getting too much pollution and all that you get to take a tenth turn you at the end of the game you take these two cards one of them you use for the end game scoring the other you use for a final bonus super activation. And you have these cards from the first round. So for the entire game, you are spending all your time and effort trying to, th trying to build these so that they'll be a good engine as you're building, but also building towards one of two potential ends. It's so good. Um, this game does so much with so little. It is a masterclass of design efficiency. I was absolutely blown away when I first read the rules about it and just heard about it. And then playing it at long last, it totally lives up to it. 
It's an amazing game. I think it deserves lots of kudos. I don't know. I mean, it's it's not a real looker, and it's not from a really big, well-known publisher, so I'm kind of worried about its long-term. But it, oh my gosh, this game... If you love Euros that are... I mean, last year, we had... I, I talked about Furnace. Furnace kind of came out of nowhere and just blew me away with its simplicity, its elegance, and its depth and crunchiness. Terra Futura is a very different game, but it kind of fits in that same wheelhouse to me. And it's just as impressive as uh, Furnace was for me. It's my number two of the month. And it's a good month, folks. So let's talk about my number one of the month. Dog Lover. Oh my goodness. Oh, I love this game so much. Uh, we just played it this weekend for the first time. I believe... Oh, this is the... When I said earlier about pre-orders, this is the one that's available right now for pre-order from AEG. Although, I believe if you're in Europe, it is available right now. It was for sale at Essen Spiel. Uh, it's available in some shops in Europe. I believe in North America and the rest of the world, it'll be showing up in early 2022. So, I am jumping the gun here for a lot of folks, but here's the deal. If you like dogs... You have to check this game out. This is from publisher AEG. And previously, publisher AEG put out a game called Cat Lady, which was a very sweet, charming little card drafting game all about grabbing cats, uh, grabbing cards that you need to feed them, grabbing costumes, uh, and uh, you know, a very simple, very lightweight game. Dog Lover takes the same core card drafting mechanisms of Cat Lady, but adds a ton of extra depth and complexity to the game. In the original Cat Lady, um, when you drafted, it, it was a 3 by 3 grid of cards on your turn. You pick one row or one call-up, grab all the cards there. You hope to get a nice combo of cards that'll work well with your cats. Now, you could still do that in Dog Lover, but you learn new cards that let you get different combinations of cards. So you can kind of start doing Tetris-style polyomino uh, tile drafting. But um, you can also invest in your dogs. You can uh, train them. You can walk them. You can uncover their personality traits. If if you love dogs and you or if you have someone in your life who loves dogs as much as my wife and I do you have to check this game out it's so sweet and charming and simple and easy and elegant to play and yet so robust there is so much stuff going on i mean it's basically it's it's basically like cat lady with like three extra expansions all shoved in here i almost worry it's maybe got a little bit too much to going on to be a pure gateway game. I've already seen one thread on Board Game Geek where um, one fellow who got the game was wanting to play with his girlfriend who is not a gamer geek, and it was too much. So they were hypothesizing, okay, could we take out this system or this system or this system? Because there's a lot of stuff. I've just scratched the surface of this. But um, it's charming presentation. Uh, it's incredibly fast gameplay. It is wonderful and deep decision-making. Really interesting drafting, quite unlike anything else. I mean, there's a lot of really new... Who says that there aren't cool, new, unique ideas happening in board games? I see them all the time, and this is one of them. I absolutely love this combination of polyomino, um, you know, Tetrisy type stuff with card drafting is so cool. And none of that matters to me, because what this really is more than anything else is an, a fantastic game, an amazing game that's all about dogs, which is probably my favorite thing in the world. So it's my number one game of the month. There's no way this doesn't make my top ten of the year. Dog lover. Okay, folks. Wow. 
Are you still here? Did you make it this far? If so, I doff my cap to you. That was a lot of games. Next month, the month of December, I think it's going to go back to normal. There's some very exciting games I'm trying to get to the table before the year is out. On um, Christmas Eve, I will be streaming my preliminary top 10 games of the year. On uh, New Year's Eve, I'll be live streaming my preliminary most anticipated games for 2022. So, lots of cool stuff coming. And of course, every week, uh, we I get together with Rel Gaviola and we stream live the R&R show. Uh, we've got some fun top 10 topics coming up as well. So, uh, December is going to be a lot of fun, and uh, it's going to be impossible to top November, because Board Game Geek Con is the greatest convention in the world. Dice Tower West is the second greatest convention, uh, and I'm looking forward to going to that in March of next year. In case uh, in case you're going to go, uh, please come by and say hi. But otherwise, folks, uh, that is it. Thank you to everybody for watching, and also, thanks to the sponsor of the show, Fun Again Games. Have a nice day, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, bye bye